Hey, hey, everybody. Larry Michigan back for another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Hello to all you deadheads and marijuana aficionados. Always nice to have you along for the ride. It's another week. More good stuff to talk about. And uh, this is a good week to check in. This is a good week to be listening to the show. You know, and it's just like if you go to a dead show some nights and you get there and you're like, oh, this is okay show. But other nights you get there and like two minutes into the first song, you realize you've gotten yourself into a good show. That's tonight's show because we have got just an absolutely fantastic show from them that we're featuring. Uh, We've got some great news in the world of marijuana. Uh, We have some great marijuana intro music. Thanks once again to Dan. Uh, My advice is sit back for an hour find your favorite smoke, uh, give it a toke or two, and listen to what we have to say, because this is going to be a good one. Uh, Today, we are talking about The Grateful Dead. Uh, We're going back to the Capitol Theater, February 19th, 1971, 53 years ago. Today, up in Port Chester, New York, which I now had a chance to see a few years ago with good buddy Mikey. It's always better once you've seen the place and actually seen a show there. You know, Rob Hunt, of course, our uh, fearless and sometimes co-host uh, grew up in that area so for him it was just like going to the, the arcade uh, but you know for those of us who you know view it as a uh, you know some sort of a some sort of a sacred site because of uh, the dead playing shows like these right so in the past we've talked about this they had a six night run in February of 1971 the 18th 19th 20th 21st 23rd and 24th tonight we're featuring the 19th last year we fe- I believe we featured February 18th, and we'll, we'll be talking about that one in a few minutes because uh, what they did last night, as I'll be saying, the night before, factors heavily into what they did tonight on the 19th. Um, you know, but this was just great for them. And if you were there to see these shows, how lucky were you? Uh, it's a beautiful place. It's not very large. Uh, it would be just absolutely ideal, I think, for any deadhead to be able to get into a place like that to see the Grateful Dead for a night or two. You know, and if you if you were lucky enough to have seen more than two or three of these shows, you know, then you ought to be calling in so you can be a guest on the show because that just would be great stuff, and we'd love to hear what you have to say. In fact, if you've been to any of those shows, just call in, and we'd be happy to have you on a guest on the show and talk you all up to all your buddies so you can play it for them and do what I do, make everybody think you're important because you're on a podcast, and isn't that, you know, fucking awesome. But uh, what kind of night was this? Well, the talk on the message boards for this show... Uh, have the deadheads describing how one could hear the LSD dripping off of Bill Kreutzmann's snare drum, which of course prompts this question, what kind was it? Uh, And the justice prompt response from the masses, the one and only brotherhood of external love, orange sunshine, or the more humorous response, when is it not dripping with Billy? Well, let's dive right into the second song of the first set, one of the new ones. Of course, that's Loser. Uh, all the deadheads out there know that. Uh, it's a beautiful tune, and as we listen to that, not only is Jerry singing it good and strong, uh, but he's playing it like he's played it a thousand times, which is cool because this is only the second time they've ever played it on stage. Uh, the night before, February 18th, they broke it out. It, it debuted with a number of other songs, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, and so they were feeling it, and they brought it right back out again, the second song on night two, and said, this is what we're going with. 
And as far as I'm concerned, Jerry nails it and just, you know, really, uh, uh, really gets it. They, they had opened with Truckin, which is fun. I never saw them open a show with Truckin, but they were known to do it from time to time, and especially back in the early days. And in 71, Truckin was new because it was just coming out on um, uh, American Beauty. So, you know, all of this stuff that they're playing at that time uh, is just uh, new. <laughs> um, Loser was released on the uh, on Jerry's first solo album, Garcia, in January 1972. It's the last song on side one of the album. A very standard first set tune. Part of a rotating number of Jerry first set ballads, the uh, biggest of the others, which is Candyman, and they, you know, they're both very similar kind of telling the story about a guy washed up on his luck and trying to find a way back and reaching out to the people who always supported him in the past to see if they can support him one more round. Um, but, you know, there was lots of other Jerry ballads that would wind up in the first set. Uh, it, typically, it must have been The Roses, High Time, Row Jimmy to Lay Me Down, so many more. Uh, this is just a really sweet melodic tune that tells a great story by way of a really beautiful piece of music and one of the reasons why Hunter and Garcia are so well matched because the the lyrics are great and Jerry uh, just dives right in with it and knows what to do. Um, the Grateful Dead played this song a total of 353 times. As I said, this is the second time ever performed. The first one was the night before, so February 18th, 1971 at um, the Capitol Theater. And uh, the last one was on June 28th, 1995 at the Palace of Auburn Hills, just outside of Detroit. Uh, so just fell out right outside of when I joined that tour for the last four shows uh, and unfortunately didn't get to hear it uh, played for the last time or in any on that last tour and then that was it. But it's a beautiful song and uh, just so nice all the way around, always uh a welcomed addition to the first set once Jerry would get going. And as you could hear uh, in this clip that we played, Jerry is going really well. And like I always do, I, I can't recommend enough that you download the entire show so you can listen to all of these clips that we feature from start to finish. And then you'll understand just how difficult it is to find, you know, anywhere between 60 and 90 seconds of, well, this, this is the best uh, representative part of the song because... It's also great. Now, I'll, I'll sit there and I'll be listening and I'll mark down a start point and, a, and an end point and then just keep listening. And all of a sudden, I'm like, no, wait, wait, wait. This is going to be the point I want to play. And I'll start there and then take, no, 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 wait, wait. And I have to like go all the way through. And, you know, sometimes it could take a while. I'm not complaining. I love doing it. Um, but uh, it, it's just not easy. That's all I'm saying. If you're a deadhead and, you know, you value it all, there's, there's just too much to hear and too much to play. But... Uh, that's great stuff. So let's talk about this show a little bit. February 19th, 1971 at the Capitol Theater. As I said last year, we covered February 18th show, which was famous for the debut of debut one night, one night with the Grateful Dead. And they debut Bertha, greatest story ever told, also known as the Pump Song, which we'll get to in a little while. Loser, which we just heard. Wharf Rat and playing in the band. It was also the night that the Grateful Dead gave us the beautiful jam towards the end of the first set out of a monster dark star into a beautiful Wharf Rat that was the debut for that tune. And as they meandered out of Wharf Rat and got ready to go back into Dark Star uh, for the reprise and to kind of wrap it all up, they launched into one of these musical jams uh, that was so wonderful and uh, so moving that it, it became famous in its own right and is just known as The Beautiful Jam. It's, it was released on the So Many Roads box set, the five CD box set that came out right after Jerry died. Uh, really probably one of the first box sets with, with Grateful Dead material on there. And I always remember how it would say on there, um, uh, The Beautiful Jam from Port Chester, New York. And I was like, I mean, I mean, these jams are all great, but I thought, could a jam be that great? And I listened to it, and it was. It's beautiful. But it, it, when you listen to it in context, when you, you pull down these shows, and the uh, February 18th show was released either, I'm, I should know this and I don't, it was released with the 50th anniversary edition of either Working Man's or um, American Beauty. I don't. I could run down to my living room and find it really fast, but I'm not gonna. Uh, just trust me, it's on one of those. And then the other one is uh, the, the, uh, another show from this run, not the 19th, but a couple of nights later. Um, and so th that's just a good way to combine a lot of music if you're interested in reaching out and uh, uh, grabbing any of it. So, right. So this, so this, they, they they play the beautiful jam last night on February 18th. 
Um, everybody comes back the next night just absolutely amazed. Well, the night before, February 18th, also just happened to be Mickey Hart's last show before his almost three-year hiatus, uh, before he returned for the final 1974 show, uh, right before uh, the band's 1975 year off. He did play with them, I believe, during the few concerts they played in 1975, and then going forward from there right up through the end, through Dead & Co. and all, there's Mickey Hart uh, providing the percussion sound that we all know and love. Now, this night, I think February 19th is just as historical as February 18th, right? First of all, it's the first show without Mickey since he joined the band in 1967. Uh, many people theorized that this was Mickey's response to his, his father, Lenny Hart, who was the band's manager at the time, stealing almost 155000 of the band's assets and then disappearing into the night. Although he was eventually located by a private detective hired by the band, and he was arrested in San Diego not that long later, July 26, 1971. He was convicted and spent six months in jail. The money was never uh, returned. The song, He's Gone, is actually based on Lenny Hart's embezzlement and disappearance. Uh, many people have thought that perhaps it relates to Pigpen, except uh, that it was written before Pigpen died, so it can't really be about Pigpen. It would be kind of weird to write a song about Pigpen being gone when he's not yet gone. Um, but it is about Lenny Hart taking off and being gone with all of their money. Uh, he, Lenny did eventually die of natural causes on February 2nd, 1975, according to Dennis McNally, one of the band's uh, big uh, uh, biographers. Uh, Mickey went to the funeral home, cleared the room out, took out the snakewood drumsticks that had been his inheritance, played a traditional rudiment, rudimental drum piece the downfall of Paris on Lenny's coffin and split. Well, there you go. Mickey was never a man for a lot of words. Uh, he talked with his drumsticks and uh, he did there again. So starting with this show, uh, February 19th, we're, we're, we're looking at kind of a different Grateful Dead, right? This is a band that's becoming lean and mean, a real fighting machine, just five members, Jerry, Bobby, Phil, Bill and Pig. Eventually, Keith would join the band uh, later on during the year uh, in, in September. But on this night, the band played the five songs, uh, debuted the night before, and they debuted Be Deal and Birdsong, both of which we'll get to in a few. Uh, Pig also has a strong showing this night, uh, leading the band through four standouts, Hurts Me Too, Smokestack Lightning, which this would be the third to last time it would be played with Pig in the band, Easy Wind, the second to last time it would be played uh, uh, without Pig in the Band, and I say that because they did come back and bring Easy Wind back a little bit later on, and then uh, Good Loving, which they also did uh, bring back. Um, so, uh, you know, a big night. Of course, nobody knew that uh, soon hereafter, as the year progressed and moved worlds into 1972, that Pig was going to get sick and uh, all the things that were going to happen to him. But on this night, certainly, uh, he's out there doing his thing. Uh, the band's debuting these new songs, marking the end of the band's shift away, really, from the psychedelic blues, Primal Dead, to the more Americana style that began with Working Man's American Beauty. Within a year, Pig would be ill, just enough energy left to do Europe 72. But this night, he was rocking the house like only he could do. And here's the first of his four featured songs.
So this is uh, Hurts Me Too. It's just a great showcase number for Pig, featuring his singing and his heart playing. And right at the end, we got just a bit of Jerry's lead. You heard Pig kind of call out to him, okay, you know, you do it, or whatever he said. Um, but otherwise, this, this clip is just too long to put the whole thing on. I don't want Dan getting mad at me. We, we've got limits. Um, but again, download this, man. Listen to this whole thing, because even at that point right there, Jerry just takes off into this beautiful, beautiful blues jam that's just... Uh, uh, it's great stuff, you know, and and I think, you know, there were some people who felt like at this point when uh, American Beauty and Working Man's were getting ready to come out, that Pig felt like, you know, he really needed to find his ways to remain relevant. And it's really interesting, you know, to ponder over what direction the band would have ultimately gone had Pig not, uh, unfortunately, drank himself to death um, and, you know, had been able to stick around for a while with the band. And would they have reached a point where they might have gone in different directions uh, might they have found a way to continue to incorporate uh, his amazing blues skills into uh, the music that they wanted to make? You know, one of those things we just don't know, but uh, everything happens for a reason, I'm sure, on one level or another. And so we lost Pig, but we wound up with Keith, who was a tremendous, tremendous piano player, who ultimately begat Brent, who was my piano keyboardist of of note during the years that I was uh, getting on board the bus and really riding it hard. Uh, and then eventually um, Vince, who I was still there, so got Vince as well and got to experience that that uh, Jim Marty effect of one day going to the show and it's uh, Keith Gauchow and you go a few months later and the next thing you know it's Brent Midland. But um, that's what we deadheads do. We just keep showing up and rocking and rolling with them and, and doing our thing. It hurts me too as a blues standard uh, that is one of the most interpreted bl blues songs uh, on record. It was first recorded in 1940 by Tampa Red in Chicago. The song is a mid-tempo eight-bar blues that features slide guitar. It borrows from earlier blues songs and has been recorded by many artists. Released on May 10th with Tired of Your Reckless Ways on the B-side, May 10th, 1940. In 1949, Tampa Red recorded a variation of It Hurts Me Too entitled when things go wrong with you. It was racist in the style of a Chicago blues with electric guitar and a more up-to-date backing arrangement. The song was a hit and reached number one on Billboard's Rhythm and Blues Records charts in 1949. The original It Hurts Me Too was released before Billboard or similar reliable services began tracking such releases, so it's difficult to gauge which version was more popular, although the former title won out over the uh, latter. Um, Although the song uh, shared the refrain, when things go wrong, wrong with you, it hurts me too. Uh, Tampa Red varied the rest of the lyrics somewhat. This would become the pattern for future versions in which succeeding artists would interpret the song with some of their own lyrics. Noted covers include Elmore James, Junior Wells, Junior Wells and of course The Grateful Dead with Pig singing the vocals. Uh, the first time The Dead released it uh, at all was on their uh, Europe 72 album. Uh, and after Pig left the band, the song was retired. Uh, he does play it on Europe 72 a few times. We're getting very close to that time of year. I'm sure we'll feature one or two of those Europe 72 tunes. And when we do, uh, there's always great Pig stuff on them because he was a feature performer every night of that tour coming out and playing songs. He was looked like a different man and probably was a different man for those who knew him and loved him. Not necessarily in a, in a bad way or anything like that, but... You know, as you change in that type of a situation, not that I would know, of course, but it seems to me that change is imminent. But when he was out on that stage and he was belting out the blues, uh, you know, I listen and people I know, we listen and it's like, that's Pig. He's just sitting there singing and uh, he was he was belting it out and, and, and making it great until, you know, until he couldn't anymore. Um, and I hope that he got the same satisfaction out of it, even, uh, you know, being able to do it like that and, and remain relevant with the band for so long, even as they changed their musical direction and he battled a, 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 a really difficult illness. Um, it Hurts Me Too was first played by the band on May 16th, 19, 19th, excuse me, May 19th, 1966 at the Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco. It was played... Also on May 24th, 1972 at the Lyceum Ballroom in London, one of the final shows of the Europe 72 tour. Now, in addition, this show is so well known in the dead world uh, that it was a From the Vault release. And a lot of you younger deadheads out there 
Um, and by younger, I mean anybody who's under the age of 30, unless you have older parents or, uh, or parents who are deadheads or older siblings or friends or something, uh, you might not be as familiar with From the Vault. Uh, this entire show that we're featuring today, uh, February 19th, 1971, from Port Chester, New York, at the Capitol Theater, was released by the dead as Three From the Vault in 2007. The From the Vault series launched by the band in 1971 with one From the Vault, uh, that's the August 13th, 1975 show at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco, with the first live performance of the songs from Blues for Allah, uh, which would include Help on the Way, Slipknot Franklin's, of course, and uh, a, a number of others. And that was the first time they, the first show uh, coming towards the end of their uh, hiatus. And they, they went uh, over for a hometown show at the Great American Music Hall and played most of the songs from Blues for Allah. One from the Vault is just great, great music. It's, it's beautifully recorded. And if you can get your hands on the CD, which I believe is still out there, uh, probably available at the Dead website, or you can probably get it rather easily on eBay or, you know, Amazon or any of those places. In 1972, they released two from the vault, uh, which were the best picks from August 23rd and August 24th, 1968 at the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles. And we said, wow, okay, well, now we've got one. Now we've got two. Maybe they're going to do this every year. Who knows? We'll see. Um, but even back then, when these were like the first ones being released, it was great to have them. But neither one of these uh, was the full, complete recordings of the shows. It was, you know, the, the best parts and the features and the stuff everybody wanted to hear. And they're great, great discs, and I'm happy I have them. But everybody was waiting for them to just start release shows. Release shows. This is what we want. Um, so they released two from the vault. Okay, that came out. And then along came Dick Lavatla, Dick Lavat, Dick Latvala, excuse me, that's L-A-T-V-A-L-A, -A -L -A, Latvala, it's always hard for me to say. Along came Dick Latvala and his dead scene changing Dick's Pick series, which was wildly popular, so much so that the Vault series was put on hold for 15 years. In 2007, when they circled back to the original series of live releases with three from the Vault, which featured the same show we're talking about today. This was it for the Vault releases. Now, The Dead did have several other Vault-like releases, uh, multi-track recordings, including 100-Year Hall from the Europe 72 tour at the Nick, which was not actually uh, a show, um, but was uh, highlights from a three-night run at the Knickerbocker Auditorium in Albany, New York, I want to say in 1989. Fallout from the Phil Vils Zone, which is um, a CD with a number of early live releases by the band. Oh, I guess that's not even true. There's some later releases by the uh, band, probably right up until the very end. He, he definitely plays a lot of the earlier ones, but these are just ones that Phil picked out of the vault that he wanted released. And then there's the, uh, there's the uh, really cool Terrapin Station one with the, uh, with the die cut slip cover that, um, you know, that shows the whole picture of what we all thought the Terrapin Station Museum was going to look like that they kept talking about building, but they never did. It's a tremendous, tremendous show from 1990, I want to say, in Washington, D.C., at the Cap Center. Uh, it's got a, um, a, a great revolution encore, a tremendous version of Terrapin Station, um, a great uh, um, version of uh, Phil getting involved, of course, as he always would at that point, and uh, laying down a little Bob Dylan for us. Um, and it, it's uh, uh, just a show that's uh, uh, really, really good. And I, I just can't recommend it um, enough in terms of uh, uh, you know going in and looking at it. But this was another show uh, that was released and could have been released as a um, From the Vault if they had wanted to. Uh, later on, we had... Um, Nightfall of Diamonds, which is the October 16th, 1989, Bob Weir birthday show, which has a tremendous dark star in it, opens up with my favorite, uh, Picasso Moon. Uh, the, they have a Trucking Up to Buffalo show, which is July 4th. I want to also say 1989 or 1990. Um, and uh, that's a great one, too. It, I think it was also released on a Blu-ray when they released it. 
Uh, they just stopped calling him from the vault. Uh, Dick's picks, of course, would go on to have a total of 36 releases, the last few coming actually after Dick's death in 1999, but ones that he had supposedly picked out in advance and was preparing to be released, um, but they just he, he died before they could be. Uh, and so from Dick's, uh, rolled right over into, without missing a beat, Dave's picks from Dave Lemieux, who took over for Dick uh, as the uh, dead archivist for the vault and, and comes up with all of their box sets and all of their releases. And he now has 49 releases in his series, and including the first release for 2024, and he's still going strong. Um, and then, they, of course, they also had a very short-lived but generally popular road trip series. Uh, all of the box sets, they're all amazing, but too numerous to name. Uh, except for my favorite, two favorites, the complete recordings, the four-night run uh, from the Fillmore West from February 27th to March 2nd, 1969, four shows with the band at the absolute peak of Primal Dead, and then Europe 72, which consists of the live recordings uh, for all of the shows on that tour, um, which I think uh, people like to talk about 73 and 77, but 72 was great. They had great energy, they had great enthusiasm, they were you know, acting like pranksters. Um, the whole Europe 72 scene was just wild for them, taking acid every day and going all over the place. And uh, they had the, their masks that they would always wear. And um, it, it just, you know, they were like kids turned loose in Europe. And relatively speaking, they were. Um, and, and I just love Europe 72. I love all of those shows. Uh, and there are so many more box sets that they've come out with. Uh, that are just so good, but, um, you know, I could spend a whole episode and maybe someday we will just start going in and talking about favorite, favorite live recordings and, and favorite box sets. But today is not that day. Uh, so it's the Fillmore West, uh, recordings from February and March 69, Europe 72. Uh, but nevertheless, it, it, things just all kind of spiraled. Uh, eventually what they had was view from the vaults, which wound up being four shows that they released, uh, and they were more particularly released as DVDs, but you could also get the music. And I was more interested in getting the music. On a few of them, it's fun, I guess, to get the, the DVD, but I didn't really spend a lot of time watching the DVD. It gives you a pretty good perspective of them, um, but I'm in it for the music. And, you know, as long as I can hear the music well, my, my memory is more than sufficient to, uh, to drum up what they, uh, what they looked like back in those days. Um, so... Uh, you know, this is just uh, uh, you know another milestone for the dead in terms of their ever-expanding reputation for jam band, psychedelic and amazing song catalog, even at such an early stage in the band's existence, right? This is 71. Uh, that makes them six years old. Uh, and by this point, they're a fairly well-established band in their own right out there, but they haven't really quite hit the big time yet. Um, certainly not outside of the East Coast or excuse me, the West Coast, in certain parts of the East Coast, um, you know, speaking of places like the Capitol Theater, of course, uh, but, you know, they, uh, they, they just played it where and when they could. Uh, they did eventually expand uh, and get larger, which was a good thing for people around the country, uh, but not such a good thing for people who enjoyed seeing them in cozy little places like the Capitol Theater, um, because it wasn't long before they were playing in much larger venues. Even by comparison, Winterland must have seemed like a huge cavern to deadheads who had been seeing them in the Fillmore and uh, uh, here at the uh, Capitol Theater and you know at some of these other really famous smaller venues where the dead were able to play in the late 60s and early 70s. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm sure it probably felt like it almost overnight, they just exploded. Uh, and they would start playing the larger venues. They'd, they'd play the, the hockey arenas, and uh, you know, even as early as 73, they were playing at JFK Stadium, or excuse me, RFK Stadium in Washington, D.C., so they had already expanded into the you know, outdoor stadium event, and of course, they'd played at Woodstock and other stuff, so they had all that under their belt. But this is just such a slice of time from such a cool point going in, um, in everything that was going on with the... Uh, with the dead at that point, and uh, uh, just really, really cool. Um, I do want to just quickly get into some uh, music news that we have here today that's always good to talk about. Not a lot, but um, a few things. Bob Weir and Wolf Brothers, unfortunately, had to postpone their Wolf Trap dates. Um, 
the National Symphony, National Symphony Orchestra at Vienna, Virginia's Wolf Trap. Uh, they were very highly anticipated shows, originally scheduled for August 28th and 29th. They were to mark Weir's first performance with his band of Don Wass, Jay Lane, and Jeff Comenti since the quartet's three-night New Year's Eve stand in Fort Lauderdale, Florida this past year, uh, this past New Year's. Though the cause for the postponement has not been made public, Wolf Traps encourages fans to stay tuned for rescheduled dates. Weir and Wolf Brothers' August performances were to feature support from the Wolf Pack, the string and bass quintet, brass quintet that debuted in 2021 and has occasionally supported Weir's band since, most recently for Weir and Wolf Brothers' Fall and Winter Tour last year, which included a five-night stand at the Capitol Theater. More ambitiously, Wolf's, uh, Weir's ensembles were shut, set to share the stage with the National Symphony Orchestra, busting out symphonic arrangements of classical Grateful Dead songs, solo Weir material, and time-honored covers. Weir's, Weir has experimented with these arrangements since 2022, when the artist presented four nights of music with the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center in Washington. This year's reunion tapped Stanford professor and composer Dr. Giancarlo, Dr. Giancarlo Aquilanti for orchestration and Steve Reinke as the conductor. So unfortunately, those shows are uh, postponed. As soon as we hear anything more about them uh, being rescheduled, we will be sure to let you know uh, and here's some more good music. And, and by the way, thanks to our good buddies over at Relics uh, for putting out all this very good content information on what's going on in the world of the dead and jam bands and really cool music. Uh, the Talking Heads now, all of a sudden, right? Uh, they hit they hit milestones along the way. And as soon as they do, um, everybody wants to come out and, and, uh, and talk about them again. Well, they announced uh, that uh, their record store day release uh, of a seminal live performance track for WCOZ-FM in, back in 1977. It's due out on April 20th, 2024. This is 420. Um, and it's also uh, Record Store Day when special uh, limited-release vinyls are put out to help support all the local record stores in town. So if you're a fan of vinyl, I would say go unless you're where I am and then don't go till after I've gone and gotten the records I want. Then feel free to go in and shop up and, and, and pick it all up. Um but uh, so it's, it's going to be titled Live at WCOZ 77. The set expands upon some material first shared on the band's 1983 LP. The name of this band is Talking Heads and its subsequent 2004 reissue. The forthcoming collection uh, represents the first time the entire 14 song concert will be available. The assemblage of live cuts was recorded at Northern Studios near Boston on November 17, 1977, a mere two months after the band released its debut, Talking Heads 77. During the track performance, band members David Byrne, Chris Franz, Jerry Harrison, and Tina Weymouth delivered over half the songs off their initial set. In addition to a previous unreleased version of Uh-Oh, Love Comes to Town, featured on the upcoming collection. The band said also included early renditions of Take Me to the River, The Good Thing, and Thank You for Sending Me an Angel. The numbers that would appear on their, on their 1978 sophomore album, more songs about buildings and food. The impending set will present the fans of Talking Heads with seven previously unreleased live cuts, a limited number of 13,300 copies of Live at WCOZ 77 will be released worldwide. The set will be released as a double album exclusively at select independent music retailers, also on record store day or 420 so there's gonna be a lot of people out trying to get their hands on that one um but if you go out you can go and get it it's got a great set list um a lot of great uh talking heads tunes that everybody knows some that you may not know as well but it's just a great thing to get uh and just re-familiarize yourself with one of the legendary bands of our time and of course one of the legendary bands of our time is the Grateful Dead so we're going to dive right back into our show uh, 52, 53 years ago today from the Capitol Theater in Port Chester, New York.
Playing in the Band is sung by Bobby Weir. Uh, lyrics by Robert Hunter, who was working a lot with Bobby at that time. Uh, Bobby composed the music with some assistance from Mickey Hart. The song first emerged in embryonic form on the self-titled 1971 live album Grateful Dead, Skull and Roses. It then appeared in a more polished form on Ace, Bob's first solo album, uh, which, as we've talked about before, included every Grateful Dead member except for Pig. The instrumental break of playing in the band was introduced as early as February 19, 1969. Celestial Synapse show at the Fillmore West, in which it appears somewhat indistinct from the preceding and following jams. The complete song was also included on Mickey Hart's 1972 solo album, Rolling Thunder, within the main 10. We've talked about that before as well, making reference to the song's time signature of 10-4. The main 10 appears on Dick's Picks Volume 16 from their performance at the Fillmore West on November 8, 1969. On that set, it appears in the middle of Caution, Do Not Stop on the Track. So they were fiddling around with this stuff, and it would kind of pop up from time to time uh, wherever they felt like having it pop up. Uh, during a uh, Bob Weir and Wolf Brothers concert live stream on February 12, 2021, Weir credited David Crosby with the composition of the main riff of the song. Weir stated David Crosby came up with that sum of a lick and then he left. We were out in Mickey's barn. Mickey said, make a song out of it. Next day, I had it. Uh, nice Bob Weir story. It's always that simple and we love him for it. It has since become one of the best known Grateful Dead numbers and a standard part of their repertoire, usually as a second set pre-drums jumping off point for jams to who knows where. Uh, according to uh, Dead Bass uh, 10, it ranks fourth on the list of songs most often played by the, in concert by the band uh, with just over 600 performances. If you download this, this show from Archive and you listen to this track at the 320 mark, mark that down during the song jam, you'll hear where they're do, 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 and then instead of playing, instead of going right back in, they veer off and they just go back and they keep playing the music and then about 20 seconds later they finally begin to veer back into it and jump in so you know Bobby's just really feeling it out at this point um, you know he, he's just clearly working everything out and uh, as as we've talked about before and we'll hear again as we roll into the spring over the course of the Europe 72 tour it was played almost every night uh, as Bobby did finally work it out to a point uh, where the song is much more familiar to all of us who saw it a few years beyond this uh, and, and the format that, that, that we all know and love. Uh, but it's all really good stuff. It's just so much fun to listen to. Uh, like Loser, second time ever played, the first time being last night, February 18th, 1971, at the Capitol Theater. 661 times approximately. Uh, Bobby loved it. He played it as often as he could. It was last played on July 5th, 1995, at the Riverport Amphitheater, Maryland Heights, Missouri, outside of St. Louis, a show I saw with good buddy Mark cool cousin Brent, and uh, a host of thousands of St. Louis and other big deadheads who just like seeing the boys whenever they can. Now we're going to dive into uh, the next song that I want uh, I want to play from this, uh, from this night. Uh, it's another very familiar song, and it's also a bust out. So uh, let's, let's roll this next one. Mm-hmm. 
story ever told. Uh, also known as the Pump Song, and in the next minute or two here, we'll get around to why some people call it the Pump Song, or at least used to call it the Pump Song. Uh, this version of the song was written primarily by Bobby, uh, Mickey again joining in, and Robert Hunter. Although some credit goes to the Reverend Gary Davis, and some people say that this song is one of those traditional, uh, more arranged by the Grateful Dead than actually written by the Grateful Dead. But uh, since they're never exactly the same, it's kind of hard to say. Uh, but we'll give uh, the Reverend Gary Davis uh, his due here. He was also known as Blind Gary Davis, born as Gary D. Davis on April 30th, 19, excuse me, 1896. Died on May 5th, 1972. Uh, blues and gospel singer who was also proficient on the banjo, guitar, and harmonica. He was born in Lawrence, South Carolina and blind since infancy. He first performed professionally in the Piedmont blues scene of Durham, North Carolina in the 1930s, then converted to Christianity and became a minister. After moving to New York in the 1940s, David experienced a career rebirth as part of the American folk music revival that peaked during the 1960s. Davis's most notable recordings include Samson and Delilah and Death Don't Have No Mercy, uh, two songs that uh, also have been recorded uh, and played uh, quite a bit by the, the Grateful Dead, Samson and Delilah by Bobby and Death Don't Have No Mercy uh, by Jerry. Uh, this song uh, this was released originally on uh, Weir's Ace album. Uh, it was shown, uh, released on uh, Mickey, Thunder, Mickey Hart's Rolling Thunder album as the Pump Song it was released on Dead Set. Uh, it's been released in various Dave's picks and Dick's picks. It's in the, played in the Europe 72 box set. Um, per Mickey, uh, excuse me, per Robert Hunter, that he said the song was known as the Pump Song, also known as the Pump Man and Moses. Is I wrote it this way uh, because I wrote it to the rhythm of the pump in Mickey Hart's Well. So, you know. Go take it for what it's worth. I mean, you can hear the lyrics at the very beginning. Bobby, instead of Moses, come riding up on a quasar. Moses comes riding up on a boxcar or a guitar or something. Can't quite tell exactly what it is. But, uh, you know, they would work it out along the line. And as we say, it was played a lot during the 72 tour and, um, and all that. Now, one of the other things you'll notice about how early this is, is that it doesn't have the Abraham and Isaac bridge, right? So Abraham and Isaac sitting on a fence. You get right to work and you have any sense. One thing you need is a left-handed monkey wrench or Abraham and Isaac sitting on a well. Water comes quick from the water, which spell cool, clear water when you can't. Those are just left out. They get to the point, they play right up to it where they should dive into that. And then they just keep playing right over those points. So again, you know, it's, it's new. It's getting worked out. Uh, they do eventually get there. And, you know, for those of us that saw them played a number of times over the career, it was a great thing. It was played 283 times. Uh, the first, again, was last night, February 18th, 1971, 53 years ago. And the last time the Grateful Dead played the song in concert was June 27th, 1995, at the Palace at Auburn Hills, just outside of uh, um, Detroit. Uh, it was always a fun song. I always enjoyed it. Uh, Bob often forgot the lyrics as he was singing through it, but we would all just laugh and rock and roll with it. Uh, you know, it had it had a really good tempo, up tempo rock and roll beat to it, and um, just a lot of fun. So, I'm gonna now, even though I hate to break away from this concert, but I want to get some marijuana stuff in today because we do have some interesting things to talk about, and uh, we're gonna start off this section like we always do with our good buddy and uh, engineer, <laughs> producer Dan Humiston playing a little bit of uh, some music that he found. Never smoke weed with Willie again. My party's all over before it began. Now you can pour me some more whiskey, river, my friend. But I'll never smoke weed with Willie again. Let's go down to Texas, guy. The late, great Toby Keith, um, whose 35 Biggest Hits album just hit number one on the Billboard 200 last week for the second time putting him alongside legends like Michael Jackson, John Lennon, and Elvis Presley. I cannot say that I am a big country fan, but I have heard of Toby Keith. And um, always, anytime a musician goes, and uh, who's as well uh, uh, beloved and, and such a strong base of fans as, as, as Toby Keith had. But, uh, you know, from a weed perspective, you got to love this song. And, you know, the country boys 
all like their weed and they would all sing about it. And, you know, there's another lyric in there where he sings, now we learned a hard lesson in a small Texas town. He fired up a fat boy and he passed it around. The last words I spoke before they tucked me in, I'll never smoke weed with Willie again. Um, you know, and it's, it's just funny, right? Uh, here's Toby Keith telling stories about sharing a blunt with one of America's most notorious pot enthusiasts, Willie Nelson. Uh, the country legend stuff might be a little too powerful for Keith, who opts for the whiskey and declares, I'll never smoke weed with Willie again. Uh, but we would, right? Because Willie's fun, and uh, that could be very cool. But we may have missed out on the opportunity, uh, uh, even for guys like me. But that's okay. We smoke in his in his memory and always think uh, uh, good things about him. So I'm going to run into a little bit of marijuana stuff here. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to touch on it today. Um, just a few things because it is part of our show and it's only fitting. And the stories today are good. They're all upbeat. Uh, we first turn our attention to Ukraine, where uh, President Zelensky has said he's going to sign a bill making medical marijuana uh, legal. It's a step, he says, that can heal the pain of stress and the trauma of the war with Russia. He's officially signed that bill, a step that he and other officials uh, say can help soldiers address physical and mental wounds incurred during the nation's war with Russia. About one month after the legislation was unblocked from advancing to the president's desk as an attempt to overturn the reform failed in the country's parliament, Zelensky gave final approval to the bill last week. The law will take effect within six months of being formally published with the cabinet of ministers of Ukraine and the Ministry of Health tasked with developing rules for the program during that time. Ukraine could start importing marijuana products sooner after cannabis is moved from strictly prohibited under list one to available for medical use with prescription under list two of the country's drug code. Lawmakers approved the medical cannabis legislation in December, uh, but the opposition party used a procedural tactic to block it by forcing consideration of a resolution to repeal the measure. That resolution failed in January, clearing this one's path to enactment. Opponents previously tried to derail the marijuana bill by filing hundreds of what critical critics called spam amendments, but that attempt similarly failed with the measure ultimately passing with 248 votes. The law that's set to take effect will legalize medical cannabis for patients with severe illness and post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, PTSD, resulting from the nation's ongoing conflict with Russia, which launched an invasion of Ukraine two years ago. Um, and this is a really important thing, and this is not the first time that that we've talked about Zelensky and, and his views on uh, uh, marijuana. It's, uh, they recognize it over there and they see what it is. And, and none of us can really imagine uh, what people of Ukraine have been going through for now going on two years. Um, as Russia attacked and uh, they've kind of, you know, gamely fought on with all of the craziness that's going on over there with American politics, will we, won't we uh, help them and support them. And, um, I'm sure that if you are a Ukraine and if you've served in the army or if you're, you know, on the home front, but you've, it doesn't necessarily say for people on the home front, but I guess if you could show that you've got PTSD because your country's been under constant bombardment and who the heck's going to say no to somebody like that. Uh, but it's a good thing and it, it's a very, very important thing. It also really establishes a, um, a, uh, a base for marijuana in that part of the world. And I think it's great that there's something like that going on in Ukraine um, you know, if Vladimir Putin ever wants to swoop in and, you know, and really do whatever he has to do to take the country away, it'll be fascinating to see what a guy like that does with these uh, medical marijuana uh, uh, legislative acts that have already been put in, into motion. It's already happening. Uh, and whether a guy like him could support that or whether he'd come in and say, you know, you know that, that that's not Marxist enough. Get rid of that weed. We don't smoke that stuff around here. I don't know. Nobody's ever really written about his predilections for marijuana and which way they may run. Um, but, you know, who knows? Maybe in time. Um, but back here in the good old U.S. of A., uh, Marijuana Moment tells us that multiple states across the country are seeing record-breaking marijuana sales to close out 2023. More than half a dozen U.S. states where marijuana is legal notched record-breaking monthly sales in December, with many relatively new adult-use cannabis markets continuing to expand and American shoppers in general stepping up holiday spending. Most of the monthly sales records were seen in states that legalized mar 
marijuana more recently and as a result are, are still experiencing the early growth of markets in their emerging stages. Connecticut, for example, which started sales just a year ago, set the new monthly sales records every single month in 2023. And Maryland also set records during every single month of sales last year through retail, although though their retail stores didn't open until mid-year in July. But even in Illinois, which has now seen three full years of adult use sales, December's adult use numbers were up sharply, rising nearly 15 million from a month earlier. Massachusetts retailers also hit high marks after first opening in 2018, up 11.5 million from the month before. December trends uh, show a, a strong sales month, even in more mature markets. And Michigan, which saw sales begin in 2019, saw a spike in sales to end a record-setting $3 billion year. Sales in New Mexico and Rhode Island, meanwhile, continue to grow steadily, while Missouri's less-than-year-old medical uh, excuse me, recreational marijuana market plateaued with figures increasing only slightly over the year after retailers opened their doors in February. Uh, but I believe we showed that those numbers were $1.3 billion, uh, which is not an insignificant number when you're comparing it to Illinois, which didn't finish that much farther ahead. In nearly all states, rising adult cannabis sales have coincided with falling sales of medical marijuana as some patients turn to recreational retailers out of convenience due to product price or selection or to avoid state registration. Uh, some states have seen sales numbers flatten or fall over time. The marijuana markets across the United States as a whole is expected to continue to grow to scale up as more states come online and younger systems continue to mature. The multinational investment firm TD Cowan said last month it projects legal cannabis sales will reach $37 billion in 2027, up from what it said was $29 billion in 2023. And at least some of that growth is expected to come from increased substitution of cannabis for alcohol, particularly among younger adults. Uh, so here really quickly, Connecticut. Uh, they began a year ago in January 2023. By May, adult use purchases surpassed medical marijuana sales, which slowed slightly over the course of the year. Between both the recreational and medical market sales for all of 2023 came in at more than a quarter billion dollars, $274 million. Um, so, you know, for a small state, they went hard. Illinois. December has typically been a strong marijuana sales month in Illinois, and 23 was no exception. After the ups and downs in sales during the first part of the year and a plateau during the second half, adult use receipts climbed nearly 15 million from November to December last year. All told, between recreational and medical marijuana markets, Illinois uh, legal cannabis sales uh, set a new record in 2023, reaching just under $2 billion. Uh, December's adult use sales not only set a record for the recreational system, it also contributed to combined sales records between adult and medical marijuana, even as medical sales have slowly decreased in recent years. Recreational marijuana sales generated 4.1, excuse me, 417.6 million in tax revenues for the state in 2023, according to the Illinois Department of Revenue. Maryland, after opening legal cannabis sales to adults on July 1st last year, Maryland uh, recreational marijuana retailers sold more than 330 million in 2023, contributing 70, 790 million worth of total sales for the year between the state's medical and adult use markets. Massachusetts marijuana retailers sold a record 158.7 million worth of legal cannabis products in December, bringing the state's total record sales for 2023 to nearly $1.8 billion. Most ever sales to adults at 140.1 million for the month were largely responsible for December's overall record. As the end of 2023, adult use retailers had seen more than 5.54 billion in total sales since their opening in late 2018. Michigan saw more than 3 billion in purchases during 2023, with the vast majority coming from adult use sales. In December alone, licensed businesses tallied a record 279.9 million in total sales. Of that, about 99%, 276.7 million, came from recreational sales. Michigan voters approved adult use marijuana legislation, excuse me, legalization in 2018 with retailers opening uh, the next year. Missouri. Missouri launched their adult use medical marijuana sales in February 23 and almost immediately began recording roughly 100 million in monthly sales. Overall in 2023, medical and recreational sales uh, combined for more than $1.3 billion in sales of cannabis products. New Mexico, sales of legal marijuana in New Mexico jumped $50.5 million in December, with adult use retailers selling about $37.5 million and medical dispensaries adding another $13 million to that. 
The mark, that marked records for both combined markets as well as recreational sales uh, uh, alone. And then we go to Rhode Island. Uh, the East Coast really seeing a resurgence along the eastern seaboard. December 2023 in Rhode Island saw nearly 7.8 million in adult use marijuana purchases, not only a monthly record, but almost more than double that of December 2022, the state's first month of legal sales. Over the course of the past year, sales figures in the state's recreational system have grown steadily as medical sales have slipped somewhat. The strong growth in adult use is made up for the dwindling medical purchases with December's combined sales still coming out at 10.2 million, breaking a previous record set in August. All told, 2023 saw more than $100 million in legal marijuana sales in the Ocean State, roughly two-thirds of which were purchased by adult use consumers. So this is just great news. Marijuana sales are, are just going strong everywhere. Smaller states, larger states, states uh, out west, states out east, um, states right in the dab smack middle of the country. And, you know, it, it just says so much, I think, about where we're at as a country and as a society and uh, uh, all the great things that are going on with marijuana. Uh, but now we're going to rotate back and talk about a few more things that were going on with the Grateful Dead on December 19th. Uh, because now we get to the point where the dead actually break out some stuff. And it's not just, oh, yeah, night two from... Uh, uh, from the, uh, the night before on, on February 18th. Uh, so let's dive into the first of those, a really, really excellent bird song. Song, such a beautiful song uh, by Garcia and Hunter. It was the second, is the second song on Jerry's first solo album, uh, Garcia. So a lot of that album getting a lot of good playtime here. Ace getting some good playtime here. Um, the new songs from American Beauty and Working Man's getting uh, some good playtime here. Roger Hunter originally wrote the song as a tribute for Janis Joplin. We've talked about that before, so we won't get into all the details about that again. But uh, it really was a tribute for Janis and uh, a very beautiful one at that. Um, later on, after Jerry was gone and Phil started playing strongly with Phil and Friends and uh, further and really getting out there, uh, when he would sing it, he would sing All I Know Is Something Like a Bird Within Him Sang, transferring it to uh, Jerry Garcia instead. You know, I don't have a real problem with that. Uh, I think that everybody knows how, who Reverend Hunter wrote it for, and everybody knows how much uh, Phil loves Jerry, and um, it's just another way of showing it. So I say more power to them and you know it's all good we uh just love it that anybody's still singing it these days from the original group and uh they are and it, it's it, it's great to listen to um still one of my favorites in concert uh saw my first one when i saw my second show ever at uh, syracuse in the fall of uh 1982 with good buddy mikey and uh it was such a beautiful song it was the first time i really noticed how they kind of like went into a song all I know is something like a bird within her saying and then, you know, came back to it at the end of the song, kind of bookending the song. But it's uh, but it's great. And so uh, played 301 times. First, folks, this is it. This is it. This is the debut version of Birdsong. 
Um, and you know, you know, it's a beautiful song, even for the first time when you're hearing it here at the very beginning. And you know, you could tell that this is going to be a special song, and you could hear it in the crowd and the energy that they have. The last time this song was played by the Grateful Dead was June 30th, 1995, at Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, hard as it is to believe, we've made our way through yet another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show, and uh, we still have one more song, which we will get to in one second. Um, thank everybody again for listening today. We do have some exciting stuff coming up. Uh, we're working on a few guests who we think will be a lot of fun. Travel schedules get tricky uh, for people who are connected to the dead community uh, or connected to live music this time of year. Uh, but these are folks who have had some experience with the band, um, and uh, we think that they will have good stories to tell and uh, interesting information for you to be able to learn about your favorite band, or certainly one of your favorite bands, or else why the hell would you be spending your time with me? Um, so thank you. Uh, fun to talk about a little marijuana. We're going to have a show coming up shortly uh, where I think we're really just going to focus a lot more of the time to marijuana and a little bit less Grateful Dead because these shows start to run heavy on the Grateful Dead side, which is great for me and I'm sure great for a lot of deadheads, but uh, uh, we really owe the existence of this podcast to it being uh, presented as a, uh, a, a cannabis podcast with, you know, with a flavor of the Grateful Dead in it. And it's important that we, uh, we don't give up on that uh, part of the mission and uh, we stay true to that as well. Uh, but in that regard, I will tell you that uh, there's just so many new uh, amazing strains and flavors that have been coming out and uh, hitting the various markets and uh, you know, just to be able to check everything out and see what's out there and you go to different places and try different things. And lately, I'm highly recommending Stranana. I think Stranana is just uh, uh, absolutely fantastic. Super Boof is another great strain. And um, Sour Patch Kids, SPK. Uh, those are three of my favorite at the moment. And uh, I would, like I say, I think if you can find them, and uh, you can be reasonably certain that they are what they are, as reasonably certain as any of us are what it is, right? Uh, that's the beauty of this industry or not, depending on how you look at it. But I really like those strains a lot. The Stranana has a wonderful smell and a tremendous aftertaste to it. And um, the Sour Patch Kids is just a really explosive, great uh, sativa uh, that just gives you a ton of energy and uh, uh, really keeps you moving. And the Super Boof is like the ultimate evening into late evening, mellowing out with the crowd. Uh, doesn't put you to sleep. It's, it's more of a sativa, but... It's a little more heavy-handed than some others, and uh, it's just a great feeling if you're going to be sitting around watching TV at night or listening to music or just kind of hanging out and doing your thing. Um, and we'll talk more about different strains, too, because there's so many out there, it's so hard to keep track of all of them. But keeping track of all of them is a good thing. The more educated you are, the more fun you have. Uh, on our way out the door, we're going to play you the Grateful Dead's debut of one of my favorite songs that they play, which is Deal. Um, it's one of their live staples and another one of the gambling songs in the Robert Hunter and Jerry Garcia collaboration, uh, first performed on February 19th, 1971. So today, this is it, folks. We are hearing it right here. It was in regular rotation until the end, both for the Dead and the Jerry Garcia band. Deal saw studio releases as the op it was a studio releases the opening track on Jerry Garcia's 1972 debut solo album, Garcia which also contained some of the other classics we've talked about, Sugary, Birdsong, Loser, and The Wheel. Although it moved around a bit in the set list early on, this debut version is consistent with the ultimate tradition of the song closing out the first set. And for those of you trying to keep track at home, this was a 15-song first set. Second set's only five songs. This first set is just a monster. They were having a good time, and they didn't want to stop. Uh, and even in the uh, Jerry Garcia sets, it was, it was typically played as a first set closer. And it would always leave you waiting, waiting throughout the break to see how they were going to kick off the second set and keep the show moving along at that same vibe that they had. Because uh, when Jerry was on, man, he would just take this tune and, uh, and, and just really rock the heck out of it. Uh, for a few, for uh, first time played, this version stays very true to the version that we all know and loved. Uh, from just a few years later, and it, 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 it's such a good song. They loved it so much, they played it 428 times. We know this is the first time. The last time was June 18th, 95, at Giants Stadium in Rutherford, New Jersey, which isn't really surprising because it's a tune they love playing on the East Coast, too, with such great energy. The East Coast deadheads loved it, but, you know, that's a long time for Deal to be out of the repertoire between then and almost a month later uh, when Jerry plays his last show. But, you know, he played what he played, so... 
Uh, enjoy deal on the way out. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Be safe. Uh, enjoy your week and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Talk to you soon. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has can of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.